Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Dr. Bogosh is an infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network in Tirana. Isaac, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. All right, so uh, we've got an awful lot to dig through here with uh, COVID. I have a couple of questions for myself. Everybody's kind of getting a little bit excited, Isaac. We want to get back at things. So let's take the so many different perspectives. Let's take the lens above Canada, first of all, and just look at the country. And how are we situated today from your eyes? In general, I think we're doing pretty good. In general, from coast to coast, we seem to have this under, I would say, pretty decent control. We're having between about anywhere from 200 to 400 new cases per day. And by and large, all is well. Having said that, we've got different provinces and different stages of reopening. We have outbreaks that are kind of expected. Uh, bar outbreak in, uh, in, in Montreal, uh, some outbreaks in, uh, amongst younger individuals from house parties and, and from restaurants. So, I, you know, I, I'm a little worried and I think that there are certain small arrows pointing in the direction that we could see more and more cases. Obviously, we need to see a trend through time. But as you point out, we're doing okay. We just need continued vigilance. And we still need to just adhere to the basic principles, physical distancing, hand hygiene, putting on a mask when we go inside and we'll be okay. Well, and I think that one of the things that I, I was disappointed in, and there's not very much I can actually say that I was disappointed in when it comes to how provincial governments, federal governments, local governments have handled this, is that I, I was particularly disappointed in the lack of expectations set on reopening. There was an awful lot of uh, worry and fear used to say, you know, if we reopen and this doesn't go well, be prepared, we're going to shut down again. And that perspective, I think, caused a reaction that didn't help us, as opposed to saying, hey, by the way, in phase three, we're going to open up these kinds of groups and there's going to be bands or DJs or whatever. We're going to see things that we're not going to like, and we will deal with them on a case-per-case basis, community-per-community uh, basis. And I don't think that was made overly clear because what it's caused is this reaction like, oh, no, there's this many cases in Montreal because of this. Shut it all down. Yeah. We have done a better I mean, job. Certainly, I agree with you. That's not the most helpful narrative to have, and it's certainly not uh, not a constructive narrative to have. I think, obviously, the communication is is such a crucial component, and we really need to ensure that this is appropriate and 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 unified and the communication has to really accommodate for different scenarios and i I really like your point about um you know the fact that we're there are going to be outbreaks this is the expectation not the rule and again i like your point about we're going to manage these on a case-by-case scenario but if we start to see a large number of these and if we start to see um a true growing trend of uh, new cases and, and, and a, a growing swell of new cases, the, the communication should still accommodate for, um, for reimposing public health restrictions. So somehow we have to walk that fine line about avoiding doom and gloom, but keeping things realistic and, and really ensuring that people know what to expect. You know, here's what's expected of you and here's what's expected of um, the public health authorities. And here's, here's a small crystal ball into the weeks and months ahead. I think that that would be ideal. I look at different sports like uh, heavy breathing, close contact sports like kickboxing or even gymnastics because there's so many bodies in the gym or hockey. All of these different sports. 
And there are going to be situations that come up. And yesterday I learned from the program that look at the numbers. That's what the audience told me. Let's look at the numbers. And I, so I did that. And when we see that perspective, we will very clearly see in the numbers whether we have an industry problem, a particular sport, for example, or we will see if we have a community problem, behavior problem, or just a business that's not doing enough. So th- that is incredibly indicative. It's a, quite reassuring, in fact, for people uh, to do all of those things, and the basics will help. Now, are we distracted? Has the scope of relativity changed for us that we're being misled, Isaac, in that? Down in the States, when you're talking about some states posting as high as 15,000 new cases a day, that some states are crossing all of Canada's total cases in a weekend, that has that wild number set change the scope of relativity for the way that we see COVID just because we see we've gone from 70 cases to 100 cases a day in Alberta. Now that is a 30% or so increase, but the reality is, is that in the grand scope of things, are we dismissing it because, well, at least we're not like Florida? Yeah. No, I mean, that's a really, that's a very good point. And on the one hand, it's, it, it's sad, but it's also interesting to look south of the border to see how things could have been if you know here's a case example of what happens when you don't respect this virus and don't take it seriously uh, and and really i look at the united states more sadly as a this is failure of leadership and and a, and a, and a political failure in managing this um and and in canada of course like we can't really frame our discussions uh comparing ourselves to the united states i don't i just don't think that's a, a fair way to compare Canadians. And of course, it's natural. There are neighbors and we have so much in common. In addition to that, we also have a lot of differences. But but I, I agree. Like, I don't think it's fair to say, you know what, if we don't do X or Y, we could become the next Florida. It just It's just not that helpful. It's just not that helpful. So I think the smarter way to do it is, you know, compare, uh, set, set our expectations and goals unique to our own epidemic, unique to our own countries, unique to our own provinces. And, and really, really align ourselves along that pathway. I think there's also other countries that we can align with as well or compare ourselves to countries that have done relatively well that might have set a good example in terms of how they implemented policy, how people bought into that policy. And, and you know, it, it's easy. It's, it's, we, we, do, we do love to compare ourselves to others. I think that's just human nature. But uh, the United States is probably not the best place to do it. And and again, like there, you know, Florida with 15,000 new cases per day on, on one day and usually getting you know, anywhere from 10 to 12,000 new cases per day. Like we're just obviously in a very, very different boat than that. So I, I don't think those are the most helpful ones. I think we should really take a more Canadian perspective and a more local perspective to see how are we doing and what are our local expectations. Yesterday on the program, one of the audience members brought up my point to a vaccine in time. And then the virus mutating in time. Is it possible uh, with your infectious disease background that by the time we get a vaccine, the virus will have mutated enough that it just won't work? Uh, I think it's hard to hard to know. I mean, there are 150 vaccines that are under various stages of development. There's about 23 or so that are in human clinical trials at the moment. And, you know, there's, there's always a risk. For example, with I'm not saying this is a flu, but with influenza vac- uh, viruses, we have this sort of uh, arms race, if you will, between 
updating the vaccine and the virus mutating and updating the vaccine and the virus mutating again. We sort of play this uh, tit for tat and try to stay uh, as close to the vaccine, as close to the uh, mutating virus as possible. Certainly it can happen. It certainly could happen with this. But I really think that at the end of the day, it, like if we think about different plausible scenarios, an ideal scenario would be if, you know, the vaccine was very protective. You get one shot and that's good for years and years and years. It's probably not a likely scenario, but that would be an ideal scenario. What's probably going to happen is that this may turn into something where we have to get, you know, an annual booster or an annual vaccine uh, just to keep up with the emerging virus. That, that might be something more realistic. But at the end of the day, like this is total speculation. Like yep. we just we just don't know. We just don't know. We will have some of the results. I was hoping for uh, July and perhaps August. It looks like we'll have the results August or at latest September of this big phase three clinical trial in humans. This big Oxford vaccine study. And this is the first of hopefully many different vaccine studies that will actually tell us does this vaccine work? Yes or no. So. Those results are, are coming soon. The virus has been reported to have shifted and changed and grown and, and, you know, mutated over the course of time. Is it going to be like the flu vaccines where it's a bit of a flu bingo? Maybe. Um, I think that with this type of vaccine or with this type of virus, it mutates uh, probably at a slower rate. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's, it's again, it's, it's so hard to know. But uh, I think the mutations occur at a much slower rate compared to influenza. It probably means we'll still need to update the vaccine periodically. Um, I don't know if we'll have a sort of a one and done type of vaccine, for example, with something like measles or hepatitis A. Uh, you know, it'll probably I'm guessing it'll probably change enough over a period of time where we'll likely need to you know, re uh, or update the vaccine and, and, and provide uh, boosters. That's probably what's going to happen. But. Again, it's, we don't even have a vaccine yet, so it, right. it is a bit too early to know. These are the questions people have as they try to get their hopes up, that's for sure. Right. I um, I kind of think of it as once we get the vaccine as the car, we might need to change the tires for the conditions, but aside from that, the car should work. That's what I'm kind of hoping for. Love it. Great, great analogy. 1-800-263-2428. Michael in Toronto has a question about blood types for Dr. Bogosh. Go ahead, Michael. Okay. Hi, Shane. Hi, Dr. Bogosh. There was some preliminary research that came out of Europe that was saying different blood types have a role. So people with blood uh, type O uh, seem to be uh, less at risk of contracting the virus and less likely to have severe symptoms, while people with type A blood are more likely to contract the virus and have severe complications. And I was just wondering if you could comment on that, please. That's a great question. And uh, there was a pretty high-profile scientific report that outlined that. Actually, a couple of points. One is that this wouldn't be the first time that that's happened. Uh, there's a number of infections that there seems to be a, a signal amongst the noise where there's probably some effect of blood type and how people respond to particular infections. I have to be careful with my words here because this may be true for COVID-19. I have that. Uh, I've read through that uh, scientific paper. I, I appreciate it. There's certain limitations associated with that paper as well. Um, and I wouldn't say it's controversial, but it's just not clear to what extent uh, blood types will really impact to the degree to which people are susceptible or have a, a severe outcome with this infection. Um, at the end of the day, when we sort of take a step back and look at the 30,000 foot view, you know, what are we going to do? And it, it really doesn't, it shouldn't change anything. Regardless of your blood type, you don't want to get this infection. 
and uh, and everyone can get this infection. Doesn't matter what their blood type is, and everyone can transmit it regardless of what their blood type is. So really, at the end of the day, it's 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 interesting, but it doesn't it shouldn't really change our our, our behavior. And really, it it just means that everyone else should continue to uh, put a mask on when you're going into an indoor environment. Wash your hands. And we still need to practice physical distancing. So, Isaac, one of the th- pieces that I read early on was blood clots. And there was an awful lot of research being done into people getting blood clots as a result of this or being more susceptible to blood clots. And then recently, I'd seen a story of a, a young, younger person, and by younger person, I mean, you know, younger adult. In the 30s was my assumption don't know if that's accurately the case, but had COVID, recovered from COVID, and now is getting treated never before uh, for blood clots, blood clots in the legs, blood clots like that. Have blood clots come up as a result or contributing factor to this? Yeah, this is uh, this is interesting, and there this is real. I mean, uh, this infection uh, can likely cause what we call a hypercoagulable state, meaning that people are more predisposed to getting blood clots with this infection. Uh, there's been a number of different studies showing that, and blood clots, as you point out, they can occur in different parts of the body. You can get them in the legs, you can get them in the lung, you can get them in the brain. That's a stroke. Uh, so it certainly can uh, increase the risk of this happening. We are really seeing this primarily in sick, hospitalized people, and it is still probably not all that common. It's real. There's a real effect. But by no means is there going to be a link where, you know, if you get COVID, you're getting a blood clot. Nothing could be farther from the truth. If you have a COVID-19 infection, yeah, you might have a slightly increased risk for, for a blood clot. And, and indeed, we are seeing that. We see that here in Toronto. Uh, anecdotally, we've seen a few cases of that uh, at uh, the hospital I work at. But, um, but like anything else, it's very likely that once people recover from this infection, that risk of clotting will also go down and go away. And also interesting, when we look back at other related coronaviruses, so SARS, in uh, uh, you know over about 17 years ago, there was also an association between SARS infections and uh, and blood clots as well. Uh, so yeah, we typically see it in the sicker population that are hospitalized, but uh, and and, the, and of course we see this these blood clots that can affect different parts of the body. When people come into hospital. We actually usually put them on um, a blood thinning medication uh, in order to prevent blood clots from from happening. Uh, And uh, that's common regardless uh, if people have COVID-19 or not. It's just a common thing that we do uh, with people who come into hospital. So some people might come in and have a blood clot already, but they're sick enough to come into hospital. I haven't seen any develop while they have. No, that's not true. Some have developed while in hospital. That's, that's, yeah. So it it can happen. It certainly can happen. It's probably not all that common, but it certainly can happen. Tony in Hamilton. Now, Tony, we are a little pressed for time here. I want to make sure you get your whole question in, but I do need to be quick. All right. Uh, Doctor, I I have a a question. We know that the alcohol is used uh, to uh, kill viruses on the surfaces of, of uh, of services. Uh, when we were young, uh, the cold medicines used to have alcohol in it. Would the alcohol, as a shot of alcohol, uh, uh, go in the body and have a tendency to sterilize the virus in the body? And uh, because it takes about 12 hours to get uh, to uh, get the alcohol out of the body. But if you had a, an ounce and a half or so of alcohol, would it uh, go through the whole body and 
uh, activate uh, and destroy some of the viruses in different areas of the body? Thank you, Tony. Uh, Isaac, I've got about 15 seconds for your answer. Sure. So short answer, no. Good question, but that uh, drinking alcohol after you've been exposed to the virus won't protect you whatsoever. But it's a good question. It comes up. It just it just won't happen. And maybe another time we can delve into the reasons why. I might pretend that that answer was yes. <laughs> just go to the liquor store. That might be a good way. Thank you, Tony, for your contribution and your question. Um, but that's an interesting notion, right? Can we drink it away? I like that idea. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, it's just not going to help. And it'll make matters worse, probably. It might make me feel better. Reasons. Yeah. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, thank you very much for your time and contribution. Infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network in Toronto. Enjoy your Sunday, sir. You will. Have a good one. All right. Nice to hear your voice. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.